Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 17th of February with me Ian Welsh. The first of Innovation Forum's Spring Event Series is coming up on the 29th and 30th of March in London where we'll hold this year's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference. Among the experts joining us will be Peter McAllister, Executive Director of the Ethical Trading Initiative. I caught up with Peter recently to think about some of the themes we'll be discussing in London and how business can find the right path to engaging on these challenging issues. And earlier this week, I caught up with my colleague Natasha Bodner to find out how the future of Climate Action event this June is shaping up. That's all to come. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news this week with B. Stevenson. After the sudden closure of a factory in Haiti in January 2022, over 1,100 garment workers will be given $1 million to share by PVH, which owns brands including Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. The sum will cover missed severance pay and pension contributions to workers, as well as the government pension fund. Most former workers will receive the equivalent of over six months' wages and some more than a year's pay after involvement by the Worker Rights Consortium lobby group. The agreement was signed swiftly and without significant public pressure, with a spokesperson from PVH noting that PVH is committed to being part of the solution, even if we bear no direct responsibility. This is an increasingly accepted sentiment amongst brands, with lingerie brand Victoria's Secret stepping in last year to pay sacked workers in Thailand, taking responsibility for the actions of its suppliers. Three US senators have written to the CEO of Xi'an, an online fast fashion site and China's largest private online retailer, to demand answers around the company's ties to forced labor. The cross-party group of senators are seeking details about the company's potential links to Xinjiang, a region whose products are banned for import into the US by federal law due to its association with forced Uyghur labor. The congressional letter cites a Bloomberg report from November that had determined through laboratory testing that garments ordered from Xi'an last year were on two occasions made of cotton from Xinjiang. While Xi'an did not dispute the results, it claimed that it takes steps in each of its global markets to ensure that it complies with local laws and regulations. The senators have demanded to know how the company ensures that none of the cotton it sends to the US has originated in Xinjiang. The letter has requested a response within 30 days. Indonesia and Malaysia have sent a joint delegation to Europe to discuss the impact of the bloc's proposed deforestation law on their highly valued palm oil sectors. As the EU moves closer to approving the new regulation, Indonesia and Malaysia are signalling their opposition. Whilst Indonesia has suspended half of its palm oil export permits during upcoming Islamic festivities in order to ensure domestic supply, Malaysia has announced that it is considering retaliatory action through export cuts. Previously, the countries have accused the EU of protectionism in favour of uncompetitive EU farmers over smallholder farmers whose livelihoods they see as being threatened by the proposed regulations. The RSPO has stated this week that many smaller producers in Asia, Africa and Latin America may be forced to bear the consequences of the new regulation, as even those using sustainable means to produce palm oil would find it hard to comply with the EU standards. An Oxford University study has detected 26 types of PFAS, or forever chemicals, in the ice around Svalbard in Norway. The study has found that meltwater can carry a cocktail of these contaminants into downstream ecosystems, including Arctic fjords, impacting entire food webs from plankton to polar bears. The study has noted the doubling up effect on animals as climate changes and ice melts, in which animals are exposed to these toxic man-made chemicals and changes to their habitat. PFAS are a class of about 12,000 chemicals used to make thousands of consumer products heat and water resistant. 
They don't naturally break down and have been linked to cancer, liver disease, kidney stress, fetal complications, and other serious health problems. A proposal that would effectively ban these chemicals in the EU has been published by the European Chemicals Agency this week, and new measures to restrict the chemicals in more than half a dozen US states will enter into effect this year. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business climate action on Scope 3 emissions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. From the 12th to the 14th of June, we'll be holding the next in our Future of Climate Action conference series. Earlier this week, I caught up with conference director Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the Future of Climate Action event coming up 12th to 14th of June. What's the event format and who's it for? This is a virtual event. It's taking place over three half days, fully online, followed by unlimited access for three months post the event for people to listen and re-listen into the recordings. In terms of who we're expecting to have, there should be around 200 attendees representing a range of retailers, brands, policymakers, suppliers, NGOs, and other relevant organizations. Delegates will range from senior management up to director level, primarily in terms of job titles, I'd say it's from CSR, sustainability, supply chain, procurement, ethical trade, corporate affairs, and communications type functions. The fact we're going to be looking at aspects of how business are engaging with climate change issues, and particularly looking at scope three emissions, is going to be relevant for lots of different sectors, lots of different businesses for sure. Yeah, this event's very across the board and also very global. Absolutely. We've been working on this for a while. What have been the issues emerging as the conference is coming together that you've found? Conference is focused, like you said, entirely on practical action that business can take to tackle scope three emissions. So we're going to be highlighting key company practices and assess how business transformation, supply chain innovation, and really look at low carbon solutions that are delivering results on the ground. In terms of areas that we're seeing a big focus around, we're seeing a lot of interest around the nature positive production sessions, looking at how your footprint on nature is obviously mostly in your supply chain and how they're looking at tackling that and working out the baseline. Any new sessions that have been added to the agenda recently? One session that I think is going to be really interesting, especially with just current affairs right now, is looking at credibility, accountability, and reputational risk. So it's going to be a session focused on how big of a threat is greenwashing, which I think will be a very interesting and engaging session. What are the new panellists that have recently come on board? So actually on that session, we're going to have Dr. Emma Keller, who's the head of sustainability at Nestle. And then since we last spoke, we've had a range of senior representatives join across the forum, including people from GSK, Coca-Cola Enterprises, Colgate, Interface, Mattel, BT, WWF, Walmart, just to name a few. Obviously, like I said, it's really across the board in terms of geographically, but also the range of companies who are involved. How can our listeners get involved? So the best way is to register online directly. We have a discount deadline, which is taking place Friday the 17th, but we will be extending that to podcast listeners for until Wednesday next week. And you can register using the code podcast, which will give you a further discount. But the other way is to email me directly at natasha.bodner at innovationforum.co.uk. And of course, if you have any questions, also get in touch. And there are still a couple of sponsorship spots available as well. So please get in touch if you're interested in partnering on this event as well. Worth reiterating, if podcast listeners use the discount code podcast, you can get a discount of £150 off tickets up until close on Wednesday 22nd of February. Natasha, looking forward to the event. It's going to be really interesting as ever. Lots of interesting sessions, lots of great people speaking. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Ian.
couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Peter McAllister, Executive Director of the Ethical Trading Initiative. We talked about some of the big challenges for business in terms of ethical trade at the moment and the patterns of engagement that he is seeing from companies, investors, consumers and other stakeholders. So, Peter, why don't you kick us off? What are the big issues in ethical trade right now? Unfortunately, there's quite a lot to choose from. I think we start with, let's acknowledge that the economic and political environment is probably as complex as we've seen it for a while. It's placing significant pressure on consumers at one end in terms of inflation, cost of living and so forth. But it's also producing a lot of pressures at the other end. So material costs, energy costs, production costs, logistics and so forth. So we've got almost a perfect storm in global value chains. What happens then is that turns into real pressure on workers in terms of their real wages, their flexibility, their working hours and so forth. We're in a situation where we're as needed as ever, sadly, because the pressures down the global value chain will translate very quickly into mechanisms and lack of opportunity for workers. One of the key areas is going to be wages. As we see in our own country, there's pressure for wage increase. There's also pressure for wage increases in a number of different countries. And the traditional wage setting mechanisms, the sort of annual or biannual wage setting negotiations, are not really appropriate in this very dynamic and level of volatility that we're seeing. So you're going to see a number of areas where there's a cry for higher wages. If that is settled through social dialogue, then it won't be easy, but that'll be progress. The risk, if it's not settled, we'll look at disruption in supply chains, which of course nobody wants. We also see, of course, a number of countries that are still facing conflict or fragility. Ukraine is the obvious one, and that's still playing out through global supply chains. But we also saw last year Sri Lanka go through a mini meltdown, both a political and an economic situation there that really translated into quite a crisis. But the worry is, as we go into this year, we're seeing a number of countries with very high inflation, Turkey at 80%, for example. But you could look at Egypt, you could look at Pakistan, you look at Ethiopia. A number of countries where there are worries about both the economics, the macroeconomics, social pressure, politics, which could translate into crisis. We don't hope that will be the case, but we would hope businesses are probably looking harder at their global value chains and saying, where do we need to mitigate risk? Where do we need to work harder to understand what's going on in a very challenging world? Migrant labour remains a key issue. Again, from our perspective, migrations happen through the ages. It's not inherently a good or a bad thing. But of course, it comes with vulnerabilities. The World Cup exposed a number of those. But when we see it in seasonal labour, where we see this in terms of agency labour, we see particular vulnerabilities. There has been more work done on this area in in the last few years. But I think this is, again, another touch point for where we're going to see more issues and more work needs to be done. And it's not just somewhere else. It's in the UK. It's in Europe. This is quite on our shores for obvious reasons that business needs to take care. Also, under any difficult sets of circumstances, particularly women and minorities typically lose out. We need to make sure that people are using a gender lens and looking at issues around minorities and inclusion to make sure that when decisions are made, that women are included, that they're not disadvantaged and that minority groups aren't lost in the mix of what's ever happening. So just a few trends that sadly are not new, but we think are going to be playing out through 2023. What then are the patterns of engagement that you're seeing, given that the gamut of the ETI stretches across business, civil society, government, trade unions and all aspects of society? What patterns of engagement are you seeing from business, from investors and consumers, say, on ethical trade? 
I think the good news is we're probably seeing more engagement by business on a whole range of issues, which I think is a positive sign. We are very fortunate around ETI with the 100 plus companies that we have. There are a number of recognized leaders. So it's probably not unusual for us to say that whether it's a crisis situation like Ukraine or on a number of different long term issues, we get good engagement for business. But I think we're seeing more of that, which is good. It's still varied. It's not the same in all sectors and it's not the same across all sizes. And there are still areas like public procurement where they're really playing catch up still with the private sector that's more exposed to public scrutiny, as it were. And there are still supply chains and levels in supply chains where I think it's easier to turn a blind eye than face into the difficulties. Business, yes, I think the leading businesses take these things seriously. Is it across all areas of business? No, I think there's more to do. We'll talk a little bit about regulation later on, I know, which we'll talk to this point. I think the other thing we see with business is some of these issues can be quite scary. They're big, complicated issues. They're systemic issues. Taking that step to reduce those complex issues into steps and untangling risk, for example, looking at regions, looking at issues, starting to get to grips with well, what can I do next? And also, who can I work with? To your point on civil society, I think there are more and more civil society members, NGOs who realise that campaigning is one tool, but actually also partnering with business and working on solutions together, inherent in the ETI model. But we see more and more of that, which I think is a good thing. In terms of investors, there's always a bit of a conundrum. There are a few that I think really make an effort here to understand things. But investors are quite honest. If you could reduce that down to a metric, give me a simple metric, and it's either a five and above or four and below. But of course, these complex human rights issues don't easily reduce down to that. So we still have this conundrum in this context in ethical trade of how do we have a dialogue with investors who have a short attention span, want something quite simple to measure, what actually are quite complex issues, and they make judgments on their investments. So I think that one still remains a difficult one. Consumers, we're not really consumer facing, but sort of the information we see and what we're hearing through the intermediaries like NGOs and trade unions is consumers are under a lot of pressure. right? And when they're under a lot of pressure, they look for value. The good thing is it doesn't appear that the ethics and so forth are therefore disappearing, but they're relying more on, I would expect company A to be doing these things. So let me get on and buy. I'm not going to spend my time. And indeed, who has the time to look at the great detail, but I'm going to place a bet on a company that I believe does these things well or that I have trust in. Again, a difficult one for consumers to know all the detail, but the sense is still that they care, but they want companies to demonstrate that they're doing the right thing. Lastly, and we'll talk about a bit more about this in detail, the regulatory environment is changing and that will change business. Most responsible grown-up businesses will try and comply with the law. As the law evolves around HRDD, for example, and if it's well-framed, that will create an environment where business can, we would argue, leading businesses are probably doing many of those things anyway, but it levels the playing field and engages everybody. So, for example, I was in Bangladesh just before Christmas and Bangladesh suppliers there are very aware that the EU is going to come out with a directive on HRDD. And they wanted to know, what does that mean for me? What do I do? How do I prepare? So these things do resonate through value chains globally. So that's a few ideas on where we are. As I say, I'm optimistic that good businesses are engaging on these issues. Always more to do. The investor thing remains a conundrum. And consumers, I think we are in a generation where consumer feedback is easy. It's on the click of a button. And therefore, I think any company takes its eye off the ball on these issues runs a high risk. HRDD, of course, being human rights due diligence. Do you think that human rights still get less of a priority for many businesses than environmental concerns? I think we may have been at the same event where somebody stood up and said, you know, talked about the fact that a leading restaurant in a hotel can tell you more about the steak in your plate than the person who's cleaning your room while you're eating it. Is that still an issue you're facing? 
it's a funny, it's a conundrum because if a company is in the media and if they're associated with human rights, that gets attention because they want to understand it, resolve it. It will engage the CEO, will engage the general counsel and they'll be focused on it. Once that issue goes away, unfortunately, it does tend to drop away to a compliance conversation. And so there's this conundrum. Yes, we want to deal with the immediate. We don't want to be associated with these terrible practices. But actually, we rest on a compliance approach rather than learning the lessons about, well, where are other risks in our supply chain? Who should we be talking to? Who are the awkward partners that actually we should have a relationship with? So I think on a day to day basis, we're still the poor brother, as it were, or sister of the environment, which not only is important, of course, but the metrics are stronger. The relationship to return on investment is stronger. The bottom line impact is stronger. So there's a number of sort of normal business motivations that I think are easier to quantify in the context of the environment, whereas human rights tends to be it's either an incident or it's on the back burner, as it were. And we still haven't got that mix quite right, I don't think. The big climate debate or a significant part of it is around the just transition, particularly thinking in terms of agricultural supply chains. What do you need to do to ensure that human rights and ethical trading issues are front and centre in the just transition conversations? We still see with many that those conversations are separated. So you have a company having a climate conversation and thinking about, is it about reshoring? Is it about product design? Is it about different types of services and so forth? And a different department in the company looking at human rights risk. We would argue very strongly that many of those decisions will come with both opportunities but also potential threats as you make business, big business decisions. The best way to deal with both maximizing the opportunities and addressing the threats is to bring those conversations together. As you have a conversation around changing the sourcing, what's the impact on communities? What is the impact on resources? What are the impact on workers? Much better to be thinking about those things early on than essentially crash into them and then you're dealing with a crisis and you're into a campaign. And again, this is Ian, about people willing to reach out to maybe the unfamiliar partners. Again, around the ETI table, we're familiar with having NGOs and trade unions in a business conversation. Not always easy, but brings very different perspectives in. I think far too many businesses still try to do this on their own and don't reach out to others to get different perspectives. The transitions, the changes we've seen driven by climate change and new technology and other things are a fantastic opportunity, but they also come with risks if you're not looking at both aspects of this. Regulation, we've touched on it already. Ethical trading issues, human rights issues feel that they're becoming ever more subject to regulation, which in many respects is a good thing. I mean, what do you think that good regulation looks like? We need to acknowledge that you can't regulate for all behaviour everywhere all the time. So regulation will not solve all the problems. However, equally, if you have a vacuum, then the risk is the leading firms will try and do their best, but there are always people willing to do less and some to abuse that vacuum. So first answer to this, and I'm not a lawmaker, but good regulation should reflect societal expectations. Why is that important? Because if it is, then it's likely to be supported by a wider community, by partners, as well as by business. Regulation around modern slavery, for example, as good or bad as it might have been, reflected a concern that we know surely we shouldn't have modern slavery in the current age. I think the other thing is it should create a level playing field. It's not reasonable that we have a few companies doing great work and everybody else can hide in the shadows. So regulation should try to make it inclusive, try to encourage or support and enable all companies to meet a certain basic level of standard so that it's not just that the few that are consistently expected to do well, but actually creates that level playing field with practical expectations. 
Again, I think good regulation would incentivize good corporate behavior. The idea is regulation shouldn't be punitive in the first instance, but should set out, to say, frameworks and practical expectations where companies can meet them and therefore we can have a race to the top. However, absent any good teeth for those who don't comply or don't take the legislation seriously, then that we need to be held to account. Because unfortunately, again, Business does watch when somebody's held to account. That gets the general counsel up and that gets the conversation around. Hang on a minute. What are we doing? Where's the risk? Are we compliant? There's a few things that I think good regulation should attempt. In the specific case of human rights due diligence, and we're looking at the EU directive, these are quite complex processes. And so it it can't really be a simple binary law. You either do it or you don't, but should be encouraging good practice, transparency, disclosure, which is a challenging thing. And in the extreme, punish people who really don't take any of that seriously. So that's a really interesting environment that we're in at the moment. Due diligence does sound great, doesn't it? But I mean, it seems to me that the law of unintended consequences is in play here as ever. What are some of the potential unintended consequences of due diligence, do you think? Human rights due diligence is quite a big subject. It's one of those words, a bit like sustainability or poverty alleviation. It sounds like everybody should have one, but what on earth is it? One of the risks is we end up with a superficial approach to this. So you end up with very nicely written reports, great websites that really take a superficial approach to HRDD and make all the right statements, but don't embrace the underlying concepts set out new and guiding principles, set out new OECD guidelines, which is encouraging business to play an active role in terms of its impact on human rights. So I think the first unintended consequence could be lots of reports, lots of work for well-paid consultants, but not encouraging the activity that we'd hope would follow from this. I think the other thing that is unintended consequences is the sort of rabbits in the headlight. It is complicated. If you're a big, diverse company, where do you start? You can't do everything everywhere. Well, again, UN Guiding Principles says take a risk-based approach. That may start with a simple desk analysis. They may start with a lot of information that's already out there in terms of endemic risk. And then you can start to say, okay, well, let's focus on this or let's dive in on this country or let's look at that particular product. So again, I think the unintended consequences could be that people are so overwhelmed they don't do anything rather than saying, okay, we've got to start somewhere. We're going to try this. We're going to learn lessons. We're going to work with people and start to learn by doing, as it were. Back to the question around unintended consequences is that the risk is this spawns a whole set of new frameworks, new processes, new tools and what have you, when actually we know roughly what has to be done and it's hard work. So we really want to make sure that HRDD does, as I said earlier, inspire and encourage companies to do things, encourage disclosure, which is not easy, and also encourage the level of transparency. So we can shift the normal from, well, we don't really want to talk about this to Yes, of course, we talk about these things. So does everybody else. And that helps normalise the sort of things that companies can and should be doing. Yes, it's important to remember that, sadly, as in everything, hard work is really the way to find solutions. Looking forwards then, what reasons do you have for optimism? It's very easy to get thinking that everything's just doom and gloom. But tell us what to look out for in terms of optimistic things for the future. Well, I'm glad you caught me today because there are days when you think, is it all making a difference? Look, the reality is the sort of conversations we have today are so different to the conversations we had five years ago and certainly chalk and cheese for 10 years ago. There are more and more examples where businesses are taking the risks, involving themselves in a whole range of challenges. We talked about Myanmar offline earlier, Ian, and are realising this is a business agenda. It's not a CSR agenda. It's not a public relations exercise. And slowly starting to demonstrate that if you do this well, there's business benefit. I think we're seeing more and more of those. Still few. 
I think we're seeing more and more of those with significant businesses aligning their business agenda with understanding human rights and being involved. So that encourages me. Also, businesses are inherent problem solvers and innovators. And when they do start to look at these issues, you bring all of that creativity into the room. Now, not every solution is going to work. But again, we're seeing different tech approaches, different ideas around how to access workers, different ideas about engaging, different ideas about working with suppliers. So I think harnessing that innovation and creativity of business is, again, something that fills me with optimism, as long as we can then focus it not on the climate change all the time, but also on the issues that we're talking about. The EU regulation, I'm slightly optimistic that if that works well, given the heft of the EU market, given how that has a ripple effect in global supply chains, that could help set the bar, encourage those who are already active and get those who are not active involved in starting to look at human rights and environment due diligence. Let's be optimistic that that plays out that way. And well, I would say this, wouldn't I? Innovative partnerships. Although we've been around the block a little while, so we're not new guys on the block. We know that partnerships are difficult, but we know they bring value. And again, I think we're seeing more innovative partnerships, different collections, sometimes business to business, sometimes business with other partners, starting to look at where's the complementary skill set here to tackle some of these difficult issues. So in a challenging world, and I think there are reasons for optimism. Well, let's hope that some of those play out. It's been great talking to you as ever, Peter. Peter McAllister from ETI, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the analysis and interviews. And don't forget to register now for the Future of Climate Action online event in June to take advantage of the £150 discount on passes. As we mentioned earlier, it's due to expire on Friday the 17th of February, but use the discount code PODCAST and you can take advantage of the offer until the 22nd of February next week. But that's it for now. I've been in Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.